Join us as we define stimming and share insights on its benefits and disadvantages. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. Welcome back, everyone. I was going to call them embracers. Oh, yeah. Embracers. Embracers. There we go. (laughs) We never got feedback on whether or not y'all hate that. So (laughs) So I guess you're stuck with it. (laughs) Last time we talked about sensory overload and we mentioned briefly stimming behaviors. But this episode, we want to focus a little bit more on stimming, what it means, different examples, and how that might be impacting your child based off of personal experience I have with stimming. Now, I think there is a lot of like range with stimming behavior. Like, I mean, I think of our oldest as big arm flapper, even today, she still flaps her arms when she gets super excited. And then for our youngest, hers is more of a spinning around, crashing and all sorts of other active stimming actions. Yeah. Like today she was going on that big bean bag and she just kept jumping on it over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. She's definitely more of that proprioceptive needing to be like smushed and squished and likes to jump and motion and all sorts of chaos. She's like my little tornado. So so there's some stand out like you're like, wow, that big stimming behavior. But then there's also very subtle ones that we also will kind of go through as well. Yeah. Like she does have more subtle ones where she's constantly kind of like fidgeting with her fingers or she like stretches them out. And because we mentioned earlier in the, the whole season that we didn't actually think that she was autistic because we weren't able to pick up on some of the smaller stims that she had compared to like the more standard ones, which is kind of like the arm flapping and such. Yeah, because our oldest kid had a lot of very obvious stimming behaviors. She did have like the arm flapping and she also did other things that were more, I guess, stereotypical autistic boy type of things. Right. And I think of like, I mean, I guess like lining things up. I'm not really sure if that classifies under a stim, but that's, I mean. I think it depends how they're using it. I think it could be potentially, but with the youngest one, we had more difficulty because her stimming behavior was initially very subtle. The crashing and spinning most definitely was not that I think was what kind of pushed us over the edge of, okay, maybe we should look into this. But the other things like very subtle things like just tension in the fingers, never letting them kind of touch each other, stretching them out, bending them in really strange ways that do not look like that would be comfortable for like a typical person. If you make like a like high five with your hand and then you like push your palm out so you like feel the tension in your individual finger. So that's kind of what she does periodically just throughout the day. And then the other one that I think is almost like if you pretend like your hand is like webbed. So you like kind of like spread out your fingers as far as possible to kind of feel the tension in your fingers that way. So it's like those two actions and then. In between, she'll kind of play with individual digits on her hand. So, I mean, those are kind of like subtle. Like, if you know what you're looking for, it stands out and it's like a a red flag. But you have to know what you're looking for. Yeah, because she might also tap each of her fingers with her fingers and things like that. I remember when we initially brought her to an OT, an occupational therapist, they had said that one of the theories is essentially that they are looking for that tension, that sensory feedback that is showing them like, hey, I have extra pressure on my hands and that's why they stretch them out because they might be undersensitive. So that stimming behavior is kind of like to give themselves an awareness of where they are in space. So it gives them a little extra sensory feedback so that they can feel their hands in the way that a neurotypical person would without having 
willing to do that. You can answer this from your own personal experience. It seems like it could also be a bit of like a comfort thing. So I think of like when we put it, her in like her little like stretchy, I don't know call it, like stretchy sock. St- the starfish. Star, right. <laughs> so yeah, she, it's a sensory sock, but we call it a starfish. Right. So like she's in, she's in like a bodysuit kind right, of. Right. So she can kind of like stretch out and feel her arms and such. But we notice when we put her in there, she's much more calm and relaxed versus when she's outside of it where she's kind of running around. So it's almost like a sense of like security, almost like a uh, security blanket. Like this is where you are in space. So you kind of feel like your body more like compression, I guess. It's almost instant too. Like she'll be crazy running around and we're like, okay, get the sensory sock. And it's almost instant. Once we put her in that sensory sock, she just settles down. Like she'll right. sit and down then, and she'll be fine. And then she has fun kind of like waddling around in it. Like, cause she thinks she's a starfish. Yeah. But, I mean, but, uh, <laughs> but like, it seems like it puts her kind of at a more like, at like ease. Peaceful. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've definitely witnessed some of these like sensory experiences with my kids, but I personally have a whole lot of sensory stuff going on. So I just wanted to share some of that with you so that you get an idea of what's going on when I experience these things to see if perhaps your child may be feeling similarly when they are experiencing these stimming behaviors. I'm going to start off with some oral stims that I have, and I'll talk a little bit about what those are and why I do those. First, I just want to say that stimming behaviors tend to be something that is done subconsciously. It's not usually something that is done intentionally. So although there may be a little bit of that, usually it's something that you do without noticing that you're doing it. It's not really something that you are intentionally trying to proactively do. So would you say it's more of an involuntary action, like almost like your body is on autopilot and just kind of naturally happens? I would say definitely for me, nine times out of 10, that is the case. I I wouldn't say every time though, because there are moments where you seek out stimming behaviors. If you're already overwhelmed or something, you might seek it out for like self-soothing purposes. So there are some times where you are consciously doing it, but I would say like most of the time it's not done consciously. Because I was going to say, I think of like when we're like sitting down, like listening to something and we're like holding hands and like you will like pulse my hand. And like the, like the, I think of like the normal action, like when someone like pulls your hand, like, oh, look at this. Like you're like trying to get my attention to like, tell me something. So I'll like periodically like look over and it's just like, you're not even bothering like to look over at me. And so I'll like look back and be like, okay then. And then it will happen again. And we repeat the process. Yeah. And then I have to basically tell you like, no, 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 I am just stimming. I like to like squeeze my fingers. So I guess I'll talk about some of these. First, the oral stems and the oral stems are things that I do basically with my mouth. So some of these that I grew up and didn't really know because I didn't know I was autistic when I was young, but one of them was like chewing gum. I was pretty much addicted to chewing gum growing up. And I realized that I really couldn't function in school without chewing gum. So I literally went through about anywhere between like three to five packs of gum a day, like entire packs of gum a day. And my dad would always buy them you for me. like a smoker. Like a chain smoker. I was a chain chewer. <laughs> <laughs> and so every day at school, I'd have packs of gum. And of course, they were forbidden. So I had to sneak them in. So that made it extra <laughs> weird. I basically would chew gum all the time. And it helped me retain my focus on what I was doing because I would struggle a lot in school. And I found that every time I would chew gum, it would help me concentrate and focus and kind of tune everything else out just like channel all my energy down to the chewing which helped free up my mental energy if that makes sense and i think that still takes place today it's just kind of like transferred over so instead of big red gum it's sunflower seeds yeah instead of big red it's jumbo seeds (laughs) (laughs) they are delicious yes so i have totally transitioned over from chewing gum to sunflower seeds so now that's kind of like my chewing stem where i do that a lot when i'm trying to like concentrate or focus and like self-regulate 
some other ones that I do orally that are more subconscious that took me a while to notice that I do is I will sometimes like bite down on my tongue and kind of just like clamp my tongue down with my teeth for a while or I might start like rubbing my teeth with my tongue and I usually do this when I'm thinking or I'm concentrating. So if I'm reading something and trying to figure something out or if I'm trying to process what someone is telling to me and I can't figure it out, I might just like bite down on my tongue and like just like kind of chew on it lightly a little bit. Kind of like a replacement to like bubble gum, but let's say I don't have gum or sunflower seeds with me. Go so <laughs> yes, exactly. If, if I don't have those things with me, I kind of subconsciously make up for it by like chewing on my tongue instead. I mean, you can always take it with you. So <laughs> I would hope so. One would hope so. The plus there. No, I didn't know that. That's actually interesting. So I think about like our girls too, and they struggled a little bit kind of with the oral stem as well. So I mean, they had to have the chewy tubes because they would want to put basically everything in their mouth, which we kind of found ironic that they wouldn't want to try and eat food that's edible, but anything that they find on the ground was basically going in their mouth. So I mean, we we tried a number of different chewy tubes with them. I mean, even our youngest, we had to go through what, like a dozen different types of bottles to find the only one that she would actually use. Yeah, so it seems like their oral stimming was more like pica. So I don't feel like theirs was so much stimming behaviors orally as it was with pica. There was some chewing. I can't remember which kid was the one that was chewing on the cables. Was that the younger one? Remember, there was like electric cables everywhere, like the cables to like the television and all that. And she would go around the house and hunt them out and just like stick them in her mouth and chew. I think that was the youngest one. Yeah, I think so. Sometimes that is just something that's like a self-soothing behavior. So if you're overwhelmed trying to focus or something like that, that chewing can help with that. But honestly, the oral stuff is not really my biggest one. That's really minor for me. I have other types of stems that are, I would say, bigger in the area of like movement or proprioceptive stems, things that involve movement. But since I'm an adult, I try to do it a little more subtly. And I think that's why I didn't realize I was doing it because, again, most of these are subconscious. No arm flapping? (laughs) I am not an arm flapper. Okay. I honestly don't know a lot of autistic adults who are arm flappers, but I do think there are some out there, but just most of them are more subtle. One of my movement ones that I do a lot is I rock in my chair a lot. So I usually do not like to use a stationary chair. I will use like a rocking chair or like a lazy boy type of thing. Or at work and stuff, I would sub out with like a physical therapy ball because that lets you bounce on there. So between rocking or bouncing, I basically have to always be moving. And a lot of the feedback that I would get is like, even if I'm standing and having a conversation with somebody, I'm usually like swaying back and forth or side to side, or I'm like shifting my weight from one foot to the other. You're just like dancing without the music. Well, who says I don't hear music? (laughs) (laughs) No, and I I don't even think we really noticed that one until like, I think my family had come to visit. So like my sister and parents were around and we're watching TV and I think we're all just kind of just sitting. None of us noticed because we weren't paying attention. But I think you had noticed that everyone was just sitting straight and you were just kind of like shifting side to side was the first time that I noticed that was weird for me because I come from a very neurodiverse and autistic family and so everybody in my family rocks and moves and sways and sits in like very strange positions and stuff so I didn't think it was abnormal and then your family came over we're all watching a movie and every single one of you is just sitting very still watching the movie for like an hour plus and I'm sitting there like rocking like crazy on my chair and then I like try to stay still and I'm like nope can't do this and I just keep going <laughs> one could almost say you were on the edge of your seat because the movie was that ha, ha, ha. <laughs> dad joke <laughs> that was more like a bad joke <laughs> uh, they're all the same so yeah a lot of that movement stuff is something for me and the reason that I do the motion stuff is because 
it's hard to explain, but it feels wrong to sit still. Like I have consciously made the effort to try to stay still, but it just doesn't feel right. Like my body wants to move. And if I don't move, it's like all I can think about. So if I don't move and if I don't rock, then all I can think about is like, don't rock, don't rock, don't rock, don't move, don't move. So I'm clearly, if I'm not stimming, if I don't let myself stim in that moment, I clearly am not going to be concentrating on like what people are telling me or paying attention to like the lecture in school or the movie or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be paying attention to. I'm not going to be able to pay attention to that if I have to force all of my concentration on not stimming. Because honestly, if I try to fight it, all I can think about is the thing. Like scratching that itch kind of thing. Yeah, kind of like you have an itch on the end of your nose and they're like, okay, we're going to take your picture. So make sure you don't touch your face. And you're sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, my nose is so itchy. Don't itch it. Don't itch it. That's pretty much what it feels like when you have that energy type of stem where you really just want to like move. It's okay. You can rock. I, I don't think anyone really picks up on it. I think you've probably noticed that there are some times that I move that are not related to concentration. It's mostly like during night when I'm stressed out. Have you noticed those? Oh, when you're like moving your foot. Yeah, you hate it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That's why Uh. I figured you would remember that one. (laughs) We have this like super king size bed and it's probably for this reason. I have this like stem that like when I'm stressed, I like to like shake my leg a lot. And like the more stressed I am, the more I want to like shake that leg. And it like helps me kind of relocate the energy that's going on in my brain and just like shove it somewhere. So a lot of time I will like bounce my leg a lot, like really fast. And if I'm laying, I will shake my leg because obviously you can't bounce it when you're laying down. But I try. I sure do try. (laughs) Yep. After a long day, just lying there, closing my eyes like, oh, this is going to be so nice feeling the pillow and then it's like i'm in a rowboat on choppy seas up and down back and forth <laughs> i don't even know what to say to that you're just like one weird dude <laughs> like, I don't no, i'm just i'm just saying like it's unexpected because you're not like expecting to like feel like your foot bouncing on the bed <laughs> we have a latex bed according the, to yeah. the advertisements you should not be able to feel the movement on the other side of the bed so i want a refund <laughs> <laughs> there you go so yeah basically rocking swaying bouncing shaking those are all kind of like my movement stems and those are primarily when i have like some sort of like energy internally that i need to release so that's usually either stress excitement overwhelm those usually come out in like a movement and so i I noticed that a lot with our youngest kid too, that when she is overwhelmed, she definitely tends to like run more, spin more, crash more. She tends to do a lot more of the motion stuff when she is getting kind of anxious. Yeah. And she'll also ask us to like rock her because she still wants that motion, but she still, she wants to be like held close. So she gets like both, I guess the best of both worlds being kind of in like a like safe, comfortable place where she can feel her body as well as the added motion involved. Yeah. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why I got my weighted blankets. I have two of them. I think one's like 20 pounds. The other one's like 35. So together I use about 55 pounds of weighted blanket together because even that's not enough. I'm not sure that's good. (laughs) Probably not safe. But, you know, I could go for more (laughs) because I need a lot of that deep pressure stuff. So if I'm stimming really hardcore with like the movement stuff, having the really heavy weighted blankets just feels so nice. It's very 
very like regulating and soothing and it just feels like a giant hug. So for me, that helps me calm it down a little bit because I'm not able to move as much and I get kind of like a pushback. So you're still releasing that energy because if your leg is moving, for example, there's nothing resisting it, then your leg can move a ton, which means you're not able to really waste as much energy. Whereas if you put some pressure on there with like a weighted blanket, you have to exert more energy. It's kind of like lifting weights. Yeah. I was thinking of heavy Yeah, heavy work. Right. So it's kind of like a way for me to put more work into it so I can release more energy by using these extra weighted blankets while I'm stimming with my movement stuff. It's usually either an emotional reaction type of thing with regulating emotions like anxiety, stress, that sort of thing. Or it can just be like, I have too much energy and nowhere for it to go type of thing. So that's where I get more of that everyday swaying back and forth, shifting on my feet sort of thing. But usually it's not for really any other reason. So it's kind of like a, a comfort, like a sa- I mean, a safety blanket of sorts. So you're trying to get yourself to kind of a like comfortable position. Yeah, I would consider it basically a combination of self-regulation and an emotional outlet. Now, the last kind of category of stims are the sensory stims that I do. These are things where I actually do enjoy certain sensory input to help kind of self-regulate, as I mentioned. Some of the ones that I really tend to gravitate towards tend to be things with my hands or my fingers. So that's things like playing with therapy putty or like squishy stress balls. I'm really particular of which kinds I like. So I don't like the foam stress balls because you can't really get a good squeeze out of those. I like the ones that are either like water filled, kind of like a water balloon, or they might be like clay filled or something like that. So that's kind of it's got a squish, but it also kind of bounces back a bit. So I need that bounce. It doesn't it doesn't feel satisfying without it. (laughs) Standards when it comes to the squishiness. Oh, yes, I will go to like five below and I'll definitely go through like their sensory stuff and personally try out, you know, the ones that are not wrapped or anything. I'll go through and squish them all and see which squish is the best. I mean, whatever works for you. Might be a weird thing to do, but yes, (laughs) I I am the person that does that. I also like really like therapy putty because it gives you the option to like pull as well. So you can like pull and then put it back together. But I really need things with my hands. One of the things that I realized is if I don't accommodate that sensory input, I will actually destroy a ton of clothing. (laughs) And I think you've definitely noticed that. Well, I was going to say, I think mostly like blankets and such that have like, I don't know, it's like not thread but like the little bit the thicker. seams wow. yeah i mean we literally just had to go and spend hundreds of dollars on new shirts for me because i have pretty much ripped the seams of all of my shirts from how frequently i'm rubbing them with my fingers it's really hard to explain but it's just like so satisfying being able to like rub the seams there's like certain parts of a shirt or fabrics that i like but it's pretty much where the seams meet together and you get kind of that chunky piece of fabric I rub those between like all my fingers. It's really a self-soothing thing. It really helps me like calm down and focus and concentrate. So I will do that when I need to do those things. But I also notice if I'm overwhelmed, I definitely find that I am doing that a lot more. So the more overwhelmed I am, the more I will rub fabric. And that's where I end up like rubbing holes into them. If I'm really in like a bad spot, sometimes I will stim to the point where like I kind of pinch a nerve in my finger and then my fingers will hurt, but I can't like help but do it. So it's almost addictive sometimes when you're using it for self-regulatory purposes because it helps so much that you don't want to stop because it's like helping you in those moments. So for me, that one has been one of the hardest ones because that one has actually 
injured me back, if that makes sense. And I have not been able to stop it. But at the same time, I do really like it. So I don't think I want to. <laughs> it sounds very similar to like our youngest when she would do like the head banging a little bit. Like as soon as you mentioned that, I was like, oh, okay, that could also be kind of a similar that's section. true. Yeah. yeah. And I have heard that from some people, the the teenage kids, some of them that headbang when they were like not super old, like old enough to know what they're doing. And these were like higher functioning. And it is kind of like that where it's like there's some sort of, I guess, like an endorphin rush or dopamine rush that comes from it that does give you a nice feeling. So you're willing to forgive the nuisance part of it because it feels nice. But for me, I just, it's something I've done for years, years and years. And I've found that that stimming, most of the time it doesn't hurt. (laughs) Nine times out of 10, it doesn't. It's just really soothing. But if I'm really stressed and I've been doing it like chronically, then it might like pinch an over something. And of course, if I don't have anything available to me, or like if I got some nice new clothes that I don't want to ruin, then I might substitute that by like squeezing either Matt's hand or I'll squeeze my own skin a little bit just like gently just to get that pressure in my fingers. My stimming behavior is generally not something that's meant to be self-injurious in any way. It's meant to be soothing and comforting, and it actually really is. I don't find my stimming to be harmful, honestly. I think it's fine. It's acceptable to me. (laughs) The only thing getting harmed here is probably my my clothes and my blankets. (laughs) Yeah, that's... That's fair. And our, I, I and our thinking, bank account. I was like, am I, am I getting injured during any of this? Oh, um, you just get a light little squeeze. It's not like I'm ripping your arm off. <laughs> You're probably like, oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, yeah, when it comes to your own kids and it comes to stimming behaviors, I basically would kind of assess them on a case-by-case basis. My default is typically to say, if you feel that the stimming is self-injurious in any way, like if they're head banging or anything like that, I would totally understand that that's not a behavior that we want to approve. Redirection is typically best for that. Find something that is similar, but not giving a negative impact to your kid. So for our kid, when they were head banging, we found out that they really needed like body space awareness. So we just started providing them with that. We got like a tight fitting cap, some tight fitting clothes some things around them to give them like body space awareness feedback. And that basically eliminated that head banging behavior. So it might have just been that they're seeking some sort of sensory input. With other stimming behaviors, though, I would say just let your kids stim. Because for me personally, if it wasn't for my ability to stim, I would probably be way more unfocused, way less able to concentrate on tasks, and probably way more stressed out. So I guess I had another question because, I mean, we mentioned as far as like not wanting to stop the stem behavior. So you mentioned that you used to chew gum and then you transitioned into sunflower seeds. So if you were no longer able to chew gum, you kind of found another outlet or another way to get the same, I don't know, fixation or same experience in just a different way using sunflower seeds, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, I think, like a fine line between replacing the stimming behavior to something that's more acceptable versus masking. So masking is kind of like trying to hide your autistic traits to be or appear more neurotypical. And so a lot of times people like discourage masking. And I think to an extent, you know, I agree that we should discourage masking because it's like hiding your authentic self and it can lead to burnout and all these things. But on the other end, when it comes to stimming behaviors, there are some translatable versions of it that could kind of fall under masking, but I personally find okay 
for example, if I do need to stim with therapy putty or something like that, but I don't have access to it. Maybe when I'm out in public, yeah, I might not be comfortable just whipping out therapy putty while I'm talking to somebody and squishing it and, you know, having a conversation with them because that might be a little weird for that person. And you didn't bring enough to share. (laughs) Right. They might want my putty and (laughs) I ain't having none of that. (laughs) So I might instead do the stimming where I'll start like squeezing my fingers instead or tapping my fingers a bit or like squeezing my leg a little bit or my arm or whatever just to get that sensory input. That is a little bit more subtle. There's controversy in the actually autistic movement and autistic adult movement about whether or not that's healthy or some people would say that's masking and negative and you shouldn't do that. But for me personally, I'm okay with masking that element to me. Like it's not a big deal that I can't show people that I like to play with putty. Like that's not the hill I would die on. So for me personally, I'm okay with that. So I think that people just need to kind of consider it on a case by case basis. So like as your child is growing, and they're learning about their autism, let's say they're higher functioning and can have these conversations or make these decisions for themselves, then I would have that conversation and be like, are you happy and content to stim openly? If you are, I'll support you. Here's the things that you can use. Otherwise, if you don't feel comfortable with that, I think that's acceptable too. I don't think all masking is bad masking. I think there's levels to masking. And for me personally, I am totally content with masking some of my stimming behaviors. There's other things that I don't want to mask. Those are not in the stimming world. We'll, We'll talk more about those later in the season. But when it comes to stimming in particular, I'm okay with that. That's not too much of a big deal for me. No, I think that's fair. Cause I mean, I was gonna say like, I feel like in some degree, I mean, I masked various components of myself. You're more open with the people that you're closest to, but I mean, in general public or whatever, you wouldn't do the same thing in work that you would do in your everyday life with the people who are closest to you. So, I mean, it's similar. I mean, obviously there's a, I mean, still a difference as far as like the verity of the masking, but I mean, to some degree, I feel like there is masking kind of everywhere. Yeah. And so when it comes to stimming in particular, that's a decision that should be left up to that person if they're able to. So if your child is capable of making that decision on whether or not they want to stim publicly and openly, I would just leave that up to them. If they're not comfortable with it, I wouldn't shame them about that either. Sometimes if they're not ready to basically unmask, you know, I wouldn't push it. That's a journey your child needs to go through themselves. Just be open and supportive when it comes to stimming behaviors. If you you are able to redirect harmful stimming behaviors to something similar, then that's better than saying that they can't do it at all. Sometimes people in classes like teachers and stuff will reward when a child doesn't stim. That can be problematic. Before I wrap up, I'm just going to share one quick story about this that I read. And it was basically there's an occupational therapist and he was working with a student in a school. And then there was a behavioral therapist, so an ABA person who was working with this child at school too. And they found that this person was basically stimming a lot and they were doing it by like kicking their feet and bouncing their feet a lot. And so the ABA behavioral therapist basically addressed it with like a reward chart and would reward them like for every 20 minutes that they didn't stim, they'd get like a prize and then it would reset. And for another 20 minutes, they get another prize. Now, when the occupational therapist came in and saw this behavior, they saw the same behavior from the child, but they decided to approach it differently. They were looking at a wide perspective. And that's something that I do a lot in my career is we look back and we try to get to the root of the why to every problem, like what we're trying to solve. 
And in this case, it was his behavior. So why? Why was he behaving this way? What they discovered, what the occupational therapist found out was that the child was not able to reach the floor. And so his feet were kind of like dangling a bit. And because of that, he felt very uncomfortable. He wasn't getting that body feedback that he needed. And his like whole system was thrown off. So he was swinging and tapping and, you know, expressing a lot and exerting a lot of movement because he felt really uncomfortable. So the OT basically gave him a footstool. He was able to put his feet on the stool. And after that, all those behaviors subsided. The teacher didn't have any problems anymore. And the ABA therapist was essentially shocked because they thought this was something that they could essentially reward out of the child or train out of the child. This is one of those areas that I disagree with ABA. Again, not all ABA people do this. It's kind of a mixed bag. But some ABA practitioners just strictly use this reward-based model and you don't get to the root of why, like what's causing that behavior. So this kid was basically able to sit in school totally comfortably and his stimming was no longer an issue because he was getting the sensory feedback that he needed. It's interesting, the two perspectives, one from the outside in, okay, why is this child like making a disturbance? And then the other perspective from the child's perspective, essentially why it's uncomfortable for the child. And then you solve one to resolve the whole problem. And with a lot of neurodivergent individuals, a lot of us do not sit like everyone else. Like right now, as I record, I have one foot curled up under me. I have another foot up in my chair. None of my feet are down on the floor. I can never sit still or sit in the same position. It would drive me nuts to have to do that forever in a classroom. That's why I use a PT ball. That's why I have a chair with no arms. I explicitly asked Matthew to bring me a chair with no arms so that I could move around in my seat and put my feet up. This is something to take into consideration with autistic kids. This whole body surround stuff is different for us. And a lot of our stimming behaviors, especially the movement ones, are because we're trying to find our body in space and get into a comfortable position so that we're not distracted from everything else that we're supposed to be doing. So that was a quick summary. We could go on and on about this for days. So if y'all ever have questions about this, feel free to, again, hit us up on social media at Autism Wish, and we'll be happy to answer more questions about this. Until then, we will see you next week. Have a good one. All right. Bye. Bye. In summary, stimming is often a self-regulatory behavior autistics use to address sensory, cognitive, or emotional challenges, and it's usually not done consciously. So if your child is stimming, it's best to let them so that they can better accomplish the task at hand. However, stimming behavior should be addressed and replaced with appropriate alternatives if they become harmful. Tune into next week's episode as we discuss sensory diets and answer questions such as, what exactly is a sensory diet? How can a sensory diet help regulate my child's sensory-related behaviors? And where can I get a sensory diet plan tailored to meet my child's specific needs? This is Embracing Autism.